I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we explore the nuance of hypocrisy. I'm Aaron Bishop here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey. And today we are in Job chapters 35 through 37. That's right. We will finish off Elihu's long speech today. Yay! No six, more Elihu. <laughs> six chapters of Elihu. Uh, just laying it out for Job right here. He knows it all. He even comes he, out and says it. He, yeah, he's like, in, I'm in 36. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. I bring my knowledge from afar and I ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. The one who is perfect in knowledge is with you. This guy's got a big ego. He he's definitely he, pretty secure in his right. He knows own understanding. He knows God. He knows God. There's no talking him out of what he knows about God, and that is such a easy trap to fall into. It to really think is. we've got God pegged down and being absolutely staunchly refusing to look at it in any other light. Right. I hate to say it, but there's there's so many different doctrines that get bandied about that frankly don't matter as they don't really affect our lives in any way. But we, we love to argue over these doctrines and fight over these doctrines. You're right. No, you're wrong. We'll, we'll even stop associating with people if they hold the wrong doctrine on something that we hold to be true. And yeah. Elihu is doing that right now. He is calling Job a liar. He's calling him wicked. He is calling him uh, all of these terrible things simply because Job has suffered loss and Job won't fess up to having done something wrong. Yeah, and he's in essence destroying a man who's already destroyed simply because he doesn't hold the same doctrine. He sees him as, as maligning God's name. As, yeah. as saying God is unrighteous or unjust, and that won't stand. That that will not stand for Elihu. And what's so fascinating about this last part of Elihu's speech is chapter 37 is right. Almost everything that he says in there, we get echoes of in the final chapters as God opens his mouth to speak finally. It's in chapters 35 and 36 where he is way off base. And this is so easy to do, to have so much right about God and so much wrong about God and to hold it all as certain. And right. then to judge others based on that certainty of that doctrine. 
And we got to be so careful about doing that uh, because it's, it's real easy to begin to judge unrighteously, to begin to, uh, to start to cast aspersions or uh, voice your greatest fears and use those as justification to take others down. It is definitely an easy trap to fall into. And when you get into it, if you start doing something like this, in the end, it just leads to hypocrisy. Because Elihu is sitting here saying, I'm perfect in knowledge. I know it all. I've studied this out. I know God from one side to the end. And in chapter 38, as God opens, he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He comes right out and says, Elihu doesn't know what he's talking about, which makes Elihu a huge hypocrite. And it then makes him guilty of slander. It makes him guilty of gossip. It makes him guilty of false accusations. It makes him guilty of so many different things because he knew how God was going to act. So let's go ahead and let's read these chapters and then let's come back and let's talk about the fallout of this speech and what all it contains for us. Job chapters 35 through 37. Then Elihu answered, saying, Do you think this is just? Do you say, My righteousness is greater than God's? For you ask, What will it profit you? And what do I gain by not sinning? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look up to the heavens and see. Consider the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does it affect him? If your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him, or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness for a son of man. Because of a multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry for help because of the power of the mighty. But no one says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the animals of the earth, who makes us wiser than the birds of the sky? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of the wicked. Indeed, God does not hear an empty cry. Should I pay no attention to it? How much less when you say that you do not perceive him, that the case is before him and you must wait for him, and further that his anger does not punish and that he does not know transgression. So Job opens his mouth with nonsense. Without knowledge, he multiplies his words. Then Elihu said further, Be patient with me a bit longer, and I will show you that there is more to say on God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Indeed, God is mighty, but despises none. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives justice to the afflicted. He does not take his eyes from the righteous, but enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if they are bound in chains and held captive by cords of affliction, then he declares to them their deed that they have transgressed arrogantly. He opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from evil. If they obey and serve, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in happiness. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbor anger. They do not cry for help even when he binds them. Their souls die in youth. Their life ends among cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by his affliction and opens their ear in oppression. 
And indeed, he will draw you from the mouth of distress to a spacious place without constraint, and the comfort of a table full of rich food. But you are full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Beware lest wrath entices you with riches, or a large bribe turns you aside. Will your wealth sustain you to keep your to keep you from distress, or even all your mighty efforts? Do not long for the night when people vanish from their places. Be careful, do not turn to iniquity, for you have chosen this rather than affliction. Indeed, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his way for him, or said you have done wrong? Remember to magnify his work, of which people have sung. All mankind has seen it. People gaze on it from afar. Behold, God is exalted beyond our knowledge. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill rain into its mist, which the clouds pour down and shower mankind abundantly. Indeed, who can understand the spreading of the clouds and the thunder from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, covering the depths of the sea. For by these he judges peoples and supplies food in abundance. He covers his hand with lightning and commands it to strike its target. His thunder declares his presence, the cattle also, about what is coming. At this my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen carefully to the roar of his voice and rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose, and his light to the end of the earth. After that a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. He does not hold them back when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things beyond our comprehension. For to the snow he says, fall to the earth, and to the torrential rain be a mighty downpour of rain. He seals the hand of every man so that all men will know his work. The animals go into their lairs. They remain in their dens. Out of its chamber comes the storm and icy cold from the driving wind. From the breath of God frost is made, and the watery expanse freezes. He loads the clouds with moisture, he scatters his cloud of lightning. It swirls around by his guidance, to do whatever he commands on the face of the inhabited world. Whether it is a rod of punishment, or for his land, or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Listen to this, Job. Stand and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God orders them and makes his lightning flash in his cloud? Do you know the balancing of clouds, the wonder of him who has perfect knowledge? You whose clothes are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind, can you with him stretch out the skies, strong as a mirror in molten metal? Teach us what to say to him. We cannot prepare a case because of the darkness. Should he be informed that I want to speak? If a man speaks, would he be swallowed up? But now they do not see the light bright as it is in the skies until the wind has passed and cleared the clouds away. Out of the north comes in golden splendor around God is awesome majesty. Should I, we cannot find him. He is great in power and justice and abundant righteousness. He does not oppress, therefore people fear him. He does not regard all the wise of heart. And thus ends the speech of Elihu. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be glad to see this guy go. Goodness, yes. 
I say that, and yet his words are recorded here in Scripture for us to learn from, because there is a profound wisdom that is to be found by really digging into what he has to say. Sure, and discovering that, but that doesn't mean I have to like the guy, and it doesn't mean I have to enjoy this section. Oh, that's true. That's true. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom to be found in reading the description of the tabernacle. But I don't particularly enjoy reading, now you clip this clip to that clip, and then you, you know, I just, okay, that's It's great. funny you should say that, because uh, I'm writing my <laughs> second book right now, and that's where I've been the last two weeks in this book, is <laughs> in the tabernacle. That's and, uh, my point. It's, it's, <laughs> it it's important, take, it's great, it takes a lot it's to... got a lot of stuff, but I don't necessarily enjoy it. Right. <laughs> well, Elihu, his speech is useful for us because it does contain a lot of nuance. There's so much in here. And it contains nuance, but it also contains just this blatant... Arrogance? Arrogance, but uh, not just arrogance. This blatant uh, hypocrisy. I mean, let's just, let's just lay it out there. Where he is so wrong for two chapters, and then he's so right for one chapter. And that makes discerning what he has to say so difficult. Well, and that's the that's the best lie has truths mm, in true, it. That's yeah. true, And the best way to, I don't know, start a cult is give a whole bunch of truth, but then twist it just a little bit, just tweak it this little bit. Right. Just use nuance. Just change the meaning of some words. Right. Just this tiny little shift. And now all of a sudden... You've got a completely different thing that you're actually teaching. And, I mean, we've seen this. We've seen this mm -hmm. in many different circles. But the most obvious politically right now is is CRT. Mm, yes. Where the... they're changing definitions of words. Right. And just shifting it enough that when you hear it on the surface, you're like, oh, yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. But really and truly, they mean something completely different. and you find yourself swept away by it. And I don't necessarily want to dive into that, but that is the way that it can be used. This exact tactic of just change it just enough that now we're talking about a completely different thing. What's so fascinating to me about his speech is he claims to know God and to have God figured out and God is in this box and he doesn't act outside this box. 35 and 36. And then 37, he says, and he is too great to be boxed in. You can't know him, Job. You can't figure out what he is. He is so far beyond us. And it's that just blatant hypocrisy right there that can be very hard to spot when you go through it the first time. I got to admit, uh, for decades, when I would read through Job, I would be like, yeah, these guys are saying the wrong thing. They're doing good. I mean, I don't see why God doesn't like what they have to say, and I don't see why Job doesn't like what, he has to, what they have to say, because everything they have to say sounds pretty dang good. You right. know, that, that seems right, doesn't it? What they're, There's the way a way they're, that seems right to a man. Well, uh, there is that, but so much of what they have to say, as we've t pointed out before, does echo a lot of what Scripture, other places in Scripture have to say. And it comes down to we have to be very careful in taking all of these promises and the, these descriptions of God as prescriptive. 
Yeah, and that really, that is exactly where everybody, everybody has been stuck this entire book. Mm -hmm. And even to this point, nobody's really broken out of it. Job's kind of dabbling in in seeing the world differently, but he's still not all the way there. It's not until God starts talking that anybody goes, oh, wait a minute, we are completely lost. Yeah. Well, Job has admitted already that he's completely lost. Uh, That's what his whole thing on wisdom was about. Look, I don't know what's happening. I don't get it. All I know is I'm not guilty and that this isn't judgment or punishment. But I don't don't understand it. I, I don't have the wisdom to discern this. But his friends, they've got it all figured out. And it's that. It's that mentality, that idea that God just completely blasts apart in the end. And he even gets onto Job for it because, hey, Job, you too, you're boxing me in as well. Right. And And I've said this before. I don't know that we as humans can help but box God. Oh, right. Yeah. It, it, It is so difficult because it requires that you have to hold your doctrines loosely. You have to hold your ideas of how God operates and what he does loosely and allow God to be who God is and not force him into this box that's, um, that we have that we, made. that we know that we can understand that we can control. I think God, God uses metaphor mm-hmm. so that we can understand him. Mm-hmm. He, he allows for our failings in this way. He allows for us to see him in these particular modes like, God is a father, God is a shepherd, God is a, a friend, God is these these pictures. Right. And yes, those are very good and they are very helpful, but they're not prescriptive either. Right. And that's something that we need to we need to make sure that we don't hold him solely to these exact roles that we have. Right. He says that he's a father. Absolutely, 100%. I don't disagree with that. He also operates in the way of a mother. Does that make him e- Transgender weird? or no, androgynous? not or, at all. Yeah. He is none of those things. Right. And all of those things. And some things we have no concept of. Right. And that's okay. Yeah, and one of the traps that's super easy to, to fall into is what you're talking about is picking one of the metaphors about God and shoving him in that box, and that's all he is to me. Um, right. For example, God is Father. That's all he is. He is Father. He's my daddy. He's my papa. He's my he's my best. He's my 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 dad. I can treat him like I treat my dad. He's the perfect dad because uh, let's face it, so many of us don't have great father figures in our lives. Or God is my spouse. Okay, so I'm in this covenant relationship with him, this intimate relationship with him, and that's all he is. Uh, I can be open and I can vulnerable. be vulnerable, but I can also be somewhat disrespectful at times. Or maybe, um, you know, there's there's ways that I uh, would treat him that I wouldn't treat a king. Um, right. Or God is my king and I can't open up to him because he is my governmental ruler. And there's no vulnerability between us. I am a soldier in his army and I am here to fight. And that's all that it ever is. And we, we 
pick one of these metaphors. It's super common to just pick one, and that's who God is to me. Mm-hmm. And he, when you do that, you then shut the door and say, God isn't these other things. Right. And he's not anything outside of this thing that I've And that is that damaging because... That is very damaging. I, and I think, quite frankly, that is what this entire book is flying in the face of. Right. Right. So let's go ahead and let's actually dig into this text a little bit and let's pick apart what Elihu has to say. Uh, so in 35, Elihu makes a, a, an interesting argument. Uh, what does God gain if you're righteous and how does it hurt him at all if you're evil? He doesn't care. He's so far above us. He's so far beyond us that acting in this way just doesn't matter. And that, my friends, is nihilism. It, it, there is a bit of nihilism. He, However, he gets to the end and he says, now, now don't misunderstand and say that God doesn't see what you do. And he doesn't hear what you say. But he's, he's just so far beyond that it, it doesn't matter so much what the individual kind of is saying. However, when you do righteousness and wickedness, he will judge you. But who are you, Job, to call him here to, to answer you? It's interesting because I've actually had these exact arguments thrown in my face mm. for why do you try to keep Torah? Yeah, right. It doesn't... What profit do you get from it? What profit does God get from it? Right. What, what benefit is it to you? What benefit is it to him? He's He doesn't care if you keep these things. It doesn't change anything for him. Right. It doesn't change anything for you. Yeah, and that's a, that's an easy trap to fall into is that our action doesn't matter to God. It does, it, though. It, it does, because if it didn't matter to God, then he wouldn't have provided instruction. He wouldn't have said, this is how you are to live. If it didn't matter to God, he wouldn't have destroyed the world in a flood. If it didn't matter to God, if he, if it didn't hurt him, if it didn't, and and, and that's if the thing didn't about hurt him. We, if it didn't matter to him, then we wouldn't have had sin in the first place. That's true, and, and I think what really gets to it is people. People get the idea that we don't hurt God by our sin, and because God can't be hurt. Why? How, Where however, is that well, said? Because he's so far beyond. He's so big. He's he's beyond us. And if we sin, what, what does it matter to him? He's God. He knows we're going to sin. We're sinful creatures. So on and so forth. And that's where the metaphor of the uh, spouse comes in so beautifully. And, and in this particular case, the metaphor of the spouse shines through because when you enter into a covenant with your spouse, one of the things that is apparent to both of you is a mutual vulnerability to each other. Mm-hmm. You open yourself up. You it, make yourself vulnerable to this other person. It should be. Well, true, true. Obvious to both parties. Uh, right, it is right. not always. Fair enough. But marriage is to be this this mutual vulnerability before the other, where you can open up about your biggest shames, your biggest fears, your biggest hurts, hurdles, uh, and, not and greatest triumphs, and not be afraid destroyed of... Destroyed for them. Right, yeah. Not be afraid of, of that judgment coming back on you of how terrible of a person you are. And guess what? We're both terrible people in this thing. Um, so, right. But when you enter into a covenant with God and he says, do these things and I'm a jealous God, if you go out and worship other gods now, you've broken that covenant. It's like if my spouse, if Rebecca went out and started sleeping with other guys, I get hurt. 
Yeah. I am damaged. Absolutely. Because she's out now sharing our intimate time and energy with other people and bringing their energy and their whatever sticks to her from that back into our, our wedding bed. And it's kind of the same way with God. If we go and we worship other gods, uh, the first and second commandment, and then bring that back into God's intimate time, we're bringing back that this things that are anathema to him. His jealousy burns for his people. And he he gets hurt when his people, his bride, his special covenant partners go out and do something that's contrary to him. Another way that we can hurt God is we can take his name, bear it as a spouse, and then act in emptiness or vain. Right. The third command. We can we can take his name and say, I work for God. I am his messenger. I am his prophet. I am his his minister. I am whatever in his name. And then we go out into the world and we act contrary to his own nature. And I think that's exactly what Elihu does. That is exactly what Elihu is doing here. He is saying, I speak for God. I have perfect knowledge. My knowledge comes from God. Right. And then he says all of these things that are not from God. Right. And he, in doing so, he damages God in the ears of everyone around him. Because now they're seeing, oh, this is what God's like, when it's not what God's like at all. Uh, if you look at the Ten Commandments, there are five commandments in parallel, and they, they speak to each other across the ways. The first column being in relationship to God, the second column being in relationship to man. And that command of don't take God's name in vain is directly across from do not steal. When we take God's name in vain, we steal the only thing we can steal from God in this world. We his steal his, his character. Name. Yeah. Yeah. We steal it from him and make him less in the eyes of those around us. And even in our own eyes. And so, yes, God can be hurt by our unrighteousness. He can be hurt by our sin. He is to the point where he had to send his own son to die in order to restore the relationship. Right. You think that didn't hurt him? Right. You think he's not vulnerable? Uh, watch the passion. That's uh, that's vulnerability uh, right there. I mean, if you if you just really want to see an image of God being vulnerable, that's an image of God being vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, as whips are ripping his flesh off, and he's yeah. being hung naked in front of the the world. So God does care, and this idea that uh, how dare you ask God to come down and address you and answer for what has happened here. That also isn't necessarily biblical because God does speak to us. Well, and we've seen other passages where God barters. Yes. Where God... Well, where, barter might... I mean, it's it's the word that we commonly use for those situations, but it it's not exactly accurate because right. God just gives. But where Abraham said, God, are you unjust? Would you... Wipe away the wicked with the righteous? Don't do this. Or when Moses says, God, for your name's sake, don't wipe out these people. Yes. Or yeah. even in the Parsha that we're reading this week, where Moses barters with God and says, don't send me back. <laughs> don't send me. Send somebody else. And he gives him Aaron instead. Right. God does come and and talk to us. He does come and barter with us, if you will. He does come and 
he cares. Oh, he of course, cares yes, he does care a lot. He, he cares about his reputation in individuals' eyes. Right, and and that's one of the beautiful things about the tabernacle is it demonstrates God wants to dwell with man. His desire is to be in our presence, and that was what was happening in the garden. God and man walked together, and man screwed it up. So God said, here's a tabernacle. I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you. But you're filthy, sinful creatures, so let's do this whole sacrifice thing. But I really want to be in your presence. And, and that failed, too. And so he came himself in the flesh and said, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. I want and to. And we destroyed him. And we, we him. destroyed him, right. And that's what all of creation is is gearing towards. Turn to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. God's presence come and dwells among men. This is his goal. This is what he's been trying since the very beginning is to dwell with men. And we have not been uh, fit for dwelling with. Right. We have not been worthy. And and so, yes, God does care. He does care whether we do the right things or not, because it hurts him when we don't. And every way that we, especially if you bear his name, every way that you sin while you bear his name, it hurts him in a very real way that is damaging to his kingdom. Moving on in 36, then, Elihu kind of reiterates what's been said before. Don't you know, if a man sins, he gets punished. And if a man does good, then he is rewarded. And it just comes out of this chapter through like verse 21, when it switches to God and his power. It's it's that same old idea. I think w one of the interesting verses that stuck, stuck out to me was verse 15, where he says, He delivers the afflicted by his affliction. And opens their ear in oppression. Mm. And in a way that is accurate. Because oftentimes we do find ourselves being afflicted. And that is because we have sinned and we need some correction, some instruction. And that genuinely is a thing but True. correlation does not equal causation just because someone is afflicted does not equal that inherently they have sinned to cause it right and that there's a big difference but god does in fact use our affliction to teach us stuff to grow us towards him well we talked about that last week that job's affliction is teaching him giving him a deeper revelation of god that the, the whole point of this is to give Job and the world this deeper, grander, broader revelation of who God is. Uh, so yes, Job is being taught in his affliction and his ears are being opened up to this new way of understanding through his affliction. But the affliction is not a punishment. And that's where it all just kind of breaks down. It's because right. Elihu he can't see past affliction equals punishment by, from God. And he basically comes out and says it, uh, verse 12 through... Uh, 17 or 18. But if they do not obey, they perish by the sword. They die without knowledge. The defiled within their heart become enraged. Let them not cry for help when he binds them. Their being dies in their youth. Their life is among male prostitutes. Uh, he rescues the afflicted one in his affliction 
and opens the ears in their oppression. And he also would have brought you out of distress into a broad place where there is no restraint, and what is set on the table would be filled with rich food. But you are filled with the judgment of the wrong. Judgment and justice take hold of you. He's saying you could be in this great place and receiving great bounty right now, but no, you're counted among the wrong, Job. You are, you are, you're unfortunately, you're judgment. full of judgment and justice. And there's nothing that can be done for you as long as you remain unrepentant in this place. And that is such terrible theology. If you're going to a church or you're seeing a counselor or somebody, and after meeting with them and going through everything and praying and, and you're not better, if their final response is, well, either you don't have enough faith or you're living sin somewhere that you're not able to find, run from that church because they're doing exactly what Job's friends are doing here. Yeah, absolutely. These things are not always a response of lack of faith or sin. Right. I mean, an initial reaction of, is there unrepentant sin? I feel like that is a normal reaction. That's what we see True. of Job himself. Did I sin? What did I do? Do I deserve this? I don't know. I can't think of anything. But if you have gone through and searched and said, God, I can't find anywhere where I have sinned to cause this, then that's probably not the problem. Right. Because God will bring you to a realization of your sin if there is sin. If there is and a sin. And if you to have be... genuinely asked and there isn't an answer, then there's probably not sin causing this. It's something else. Right. And if your spiritual environment is insisting that it has to be that, then get out of it. Yeah, you need to It's leave. abusive at that point. Um, because they're basically accusing you. Uh, they're victim blaming is right. what it is. That's exactly what and, it is. And it's so unhealthy. And unfortunately, there are a lot of churches that end up doing this and end up really damaging their members. But I also want to point out, if their initial response is look for sin, that is not a, a wrong thing. It's, right. it's the constant and repetitive, this has to be sin, even when you know for sure there's not. Right. That's when it becomes abusive and wrong. So then in verse 22, it begins talking about God and his power, who's a teacher like him, who's appointed him his ways, or said, you've worked on righteousness, um, and so on and so forth. He, he continues on and he goes through and he glorifies God and he raises him up as unknowable, unsearchable, so far beyond us that we can't possibly comprehend him or the ways that he acts. And it, it's such a shift and a turn from what he was just saying about this is the way that God acts and this is what God does and this is you're guilty. We know this to be true because this is how God does things. Right. It's It seems disjointed. There's a mental because, disconnect there. Yeah, absolutely. There's a massive mental disconnect because he's saying all of these things that, that we've already discussed, how very wrong they are. And then he starts just glorifying God. And it, quite frankly, it almost seems disingenuous mm. because... It's, while he does, in fact, believe these things about God, God is great and, and his praise of him is accurate. It's almost, at least how I'm receiving it, 
it feels like he's saying these things in order to prop himself up. Well, it it, uh, it feels more to me like he's just trying to cover all his bases. Yeah. Cause, yeah uh, maybe. Because oftentimes when you encounter something like this, uh, people can hold contradictory ideas in their head. Uh, we do it all the time. It doesn't make sense. It's just part of human psychology. But when people hold two contradictory ideas in their head, there's one of them that they really believe. And the other one is just something that they mentally assent to. And you can kind of tell which one is which based on how they live their life and the things that they focus on when they when they really dig in. And so when we see Elihu holding these two contradictory ideas, God is unknowable, but I know God, and he does these things. We can know which one he actually thinks of himself, like truly believes, based on how he talks. And oh. the other is there simply because it has to be there in in order for his theological framework to be complete. Well, and that's kind of what I meant by him propping himself up because he is making sure that he still looks like he's worshiping God, but his actions and his accusations and his vile spewing of his slander. Yeah. Slander. That's a great word is is where his heart is at. Mm -hmm. So this praise is, is like I said, rather disingenuous yes. because it is not coming from a heart that actually loves God. It's like it says in scripture, you cannot love God and hate your neighbor. You can't. You can't hold right. both of those. You will either love God or you will hate your neighbor, but you cannot genuinely do both. Right. Or you cannot love God and serve money. It's impossible. You can't do both. You can only serve one master, and either money will control you or God will control you. But we, we like to hold these contradictory ideas all the time. And and as you pointed out, it's, it's often for that uh, feeling of self-righteousness. Because I think Elihu, if he didn't add this part on, he would recognize, and everyone else would recognize, that he doesn't have a complete theology. Mm-hmm. And there's this, this gaping hole over here in this area of who God is and how he acts that everyone would be able to point to and say, but, but, but let me fill this in for you and use it as an argument against him. Mm -hmm. But if he claims it as his own idea, then they can't use it against him. And he has to fill that in so that his perfect, his complete knowledge is on full display for everyone to see. And we do that so often. Uh, I, I've caught myself doing that at times and, and it's gotten less and less in recent years as I've become more and more aware of my own words and my own theology. But years ago, it was super easy to say, Oh, I love God. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I, I do all these things. I love my wife. I am totally devoted to her and then go and look at pornography. Mm. Or even something as simple as those t-shirts that I see people wearing. I love God, but I curse a little. It's like, mm. okay, that's not something you should be bragging about. Right. That's something you should be actively working against. Right. Let's not, let's not show off and brag about 
our, our, our struggles, our sins. That's yeah. not that's not honoring to God in any way. Right, especially if you're claiming his name, that whole I love God bit. You are taking his name. And I curse a little. Well, there it goes. It's in vain now. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the definition of taking God's name in vain. And and you see it all over the internet, these quippy little things, these fun little sayings, you know, the the little laugh moments. Ha, 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 ha. But so many of them, they're, they're right there on the edge of just being dangerous and blasphemous. Yeah. And we're called to a higher standard than that. Um, right. We shouldn't be doing stuff like that for the sake of a laugh on Facebook or the little laughy face or to be, to be seen as the funny one or to gain a following on social media. We got to be very careful about that. So anyway, Elihu, what a guy. What a guy. He, unfortunately, he messed up. Unfortunately, he is messed up and but he is us. us. And that is, that is something that is hard to reconcile. At but times. It, it does help us seeing this so glaringly of Elihu in his hypocrisy. But uh, double mindedness. Yeah, that's the one I was looking for. The just the holding two opposing, completely contradictory ideas, mm-hmm. and recognizing it in him's easy. Mm-hmm. But it's also a big pointer to ourselves saying where are we doing the same thing right so that's where when we're seeking to know god better know our selves better that's one place that we can truly dig in and see okay where am i failing here right and that frankly is a huge part of seeking life is uh, seeking those places where you're absolutely failing in life. And trying to strip away all that stuff that doesn't serve God and doesn't serve you. So seek life. And all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.